Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 67. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith, here with Christopher Russell on a Thursday morning in the Guide Shack we are literally holed up in here because there are 70 billion mosquitoes outside. I fell asleep to the low hum of uh, last night. It was yeah. pretty awful. They haven't eaten since last September, and they're really hungry. Oh, that's not true. They ate last night. And they just got out <laughs> here get, within the last day or two. They gorged. We cooked a giant Dutch oven. Three, then, actually. Well, yeah, three Dutch oven meals, or one meal out of three Dutch ovens. Man, they sucked all my blood. I can't think. Yeah. So today we've got one or two little current events things and then we want to talk about the Jack Mountain approach yeah. to living and teaching in the natural world which is um, I think somewhat unique maybe not from our perspective but we don't get out very much. No. Anyway we are now uh, nearing the end of week six of the spring 2019 wilderness bushcraft semester. And this is the first uh, semester we've had our new digital assessment system, um, and it's going great. So one of the problems that we have had here in the past is with regards to people keeping their stuff charged. Um, You know, the weak point of any solar system is the batteries. Pluto. Uh, Solar power system. There it is. (laughs) Are the batteries, right? (laughs) So... They have to be well-managed, well-maintained. You can't just plug them in. It's not like living off the grid is not like living on the grid. Like simple off-grid systems, you can't just plug everything in all the time and use up all the power. Because if you do that with batteries, they perform uh, worse and worse progressively as you move forward. So you have to maintain them very well. So one of the things that we've always wanted to do is to get everybody to have their own portable little battery um, that they can charge, and I think we just found a solution for that. Uh, but I'll get back with you probably next week after we've tested that solution. But the long-term goal is to have several charging stations around the field school where students can take their battery or device and plug in to something when the sun is shining. Um, so we won't be maintaining a battery bank uh, because, again, that's the weak point of the system. Yeah. So we're... Really excited about that. I almost, like a little kid the other night, I couldn't sleep because I was so excited. Because this is a problem that we've been looking for a good solution for for at least four, maybe five years. So yeah. to see that we might have a, a really simple fix on the horizon 
um, is great. And it's not like the technology doesn't exist or we've you know invented something new. It's just finding the right pieces to the puzzle and assembling them in a way that's going to work with the culture that we have here. That's been the challenge. Obviously, the technology exists to do all sorts of crazy stuff with solar. Um, so pretty excited about that. So today we want to talk about the Jack Mountain approach to living outdoors, learning, teaching, uh, bushcraft, primitive skills, whatever term seems to be uh, in vogue and that you like to use. Hashtag so, woods life. Hashtag, yeah, full tang lifestyle. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Um, so we call what we do here, our approach is the exper- experiential anthropological approach to bushcraft Outdoor living, guide training, hashtag full-time lifestyle. Um, So let me take you back on a little journey back through recent history. So um, when I was getting started doing this, when I was doing a lot of my research and learning in the early and mid-1990s, the big term was primitive skills and people really studied a lot of native cultures and that sort of a thing. And a lot of the skills could be drawn directly from there. And when we fast forward, once bushcraft really sort of took off as a term, um, you know, uh, something different than, say, survival, survivalism, prepping. Once bushcraft really took off, um, it coincided with the rise of an annoying television show uh, that tried to define everything in a binary manner. So that show was called Dual Survival, and the annoying writers they had for that show basically tried to say that everybody was either a tactical ex-military person or a bush hippie right so for a number of years everybody uh that i saw like online in the popular culture kind of embraced that and it's just always annoyed the hell out of me i for one uh personally i refuse to be defined by kind of flunky tv writers right but the problem is that unless you define yourself you leave those people the opportunity to define you and I find that, you know, it's defining. It's, yeah, defining. Distasteful, annoying. Because um, I remember, I have a vague, uh, vague. I have a, a very clear recollection of somebody asking me, so, you know, uh, I think they came up here and like, so you, since you weren't in the military, you must be a hippie. And I was like, what the hell are you talking yeah. about? Um, it's, such a, it's just annoying. <laughs> yeah, and the reality is, is that if you're on either end of that sort of spectrum, at least in my experience running programs, um, like the really like gung ho military type a people, they don't survive. And then the, well, no, no, we should make a clear distinction here between like the kind of the posers, which is 90% of the people. And then like the people who are the real deal. Yeah. 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 They, uh, well, they so, great. yeah, what I'm implying is like somebody that's like, I'm, I'm going to be the last man standing and sort of this trope that they've built of like this, hardcore type a kind of guy that would be the yeah sort of the like you said like the uber military guy they don't do well they burn out really quick and they Um, get crushed by the bugs yeah they get crushed by the stresses of real living outdoors and then on the other side of that in my experience um the people that are really i don't know what's the word you crunchy um sort of like bush hippie kind of thing they don't they don't seem to get a lot done like you you need to fall somewhere in the middle you need to be flexible no i mean i'm not even saying that it's in the middle. I'm saying that, that that those are not the ends of the no. spectrum. I'm saying those are just two weird ah. offshoots. Yeah. That if we look back traditionally throughout history, you know, the people that live in sure. the forest, they didn't they weren't on that spectrum, right? Yeah. You know. Okay. Like for example, like like uh you know, our Cree friends up north. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they'd be like, what are you, if I broached this topic with them, they would look at me like I had three heads and be like, what are you talking about? Like, is everybody in the United States crazy like you are? And you'd say, yes. <laughs> say, yes, yeah. they are. Yes, they are. Yes, <laughs> I am. Uh, but anyway. The, yeah. Uh, but just the idea that, that, you know, this whole realm of experience can be defined in a binary manner by a yeah. flunky TV writer. No, thank you. Uh, we reject and refute your silly little claim. Traditionally, in this part of the world, in northern Maine, you know, the woods life was, it's a rural area. There's just about zero infrastructure. We are right on the edge of the north Maine woods. From our road here, it's about 90 miles due west of the Quebec border, and it's about 120 miles north to south, this big chunk of ground that people have lived out in, you know, forever. You know, the, the natives lived there. There have always been trappers out there. Um, and it's just, you know, an area. And you don't live the woods life authentically and real, especially not in an area like this where the climate can be pretty extreme, when you have these ridiculous, dogmatic, yeah. stupid things. Yeah, um, agreed. So... So there's my rant against the uh, the binary hippie versus tactical bit. Um, but yeah, and just a little little uh, behind the scenes ish here. Tim on our our list of notes has written down break it down, and I think that's what he just did. But I was really hoping it would be a freestyle rap. That's coming later. Okay, perfect. With the dance, nice, uh, nice. So anyway, since what was that? Two thousand nine when that show debuted. So that's right about when bushcraft as a term started to get really popular. So I will say right now that I will define that era, 2009 to 2019, as the dark ages of bushcraft. You know, sort of like the dark ages in European history when everything was kind of driven by this uh, overarching belief that somebody had all the right answers. And those answers, the people who thought they had them were TV. And they convinced a lot of people they did. But... Like most things like that, they were just full of it. So, anyway, hopefully that era is coming to an end as reality TV, at least in the survival and bushcraft genre, sputters to uh, hopefully soon to be uh, end. Yeah, and hopefully is taken <laughs> over by smelly Renaissance men. Uh, oh, what? Well, what genre? Well, maybe more, another show about the Kardashians or something. No, I meant no. I, I meant that. I meant that it. I was making a history joke, Tim. You think the Dark Ages went right up to the Renaissance? Yep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> We're going to have to have some history lessons around here, son. <laughs> Name me the first book of the Renaissance. Leonardo DiCaprio's no, Titanic. No no, no, no. Not Leonardo DiCaprio's Titanic? The Ascent of Mount Ventoux. Ah. Who are you? Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk now about... Now Tim is breaking me down. <laughs> That's what's happening. Let's talk about the... Uh... <laughs> That's a true story. A true story. I, I believe you. That's the problem. It was the first book that was written by a guy uh, post... Um, basically, the beginning of the Renaissance, post-church era, where he, it, right. it's a story of him going to climb a mountain because he wanted to climb it. Uh, it wasn't for the greater glory of God, you know, Middle Ages-wise. He, well, it was, you know, what, 13th century Italy. So, yeah, he was smelly. Probably. Anyway. So, I want to talk about the approach that we do have, which we call... Because you should define yourself so no uh, like TV flunky can define you. We call what we do here at the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School the experiential anthropological approach. So let's break that down term by term. Experiential, um, you know, the only way to really know 
the woods life and to live outdoors is to live it. Meaning you could read all sorts of books. You could go to all sorts of like car camping rendezvous. You could do all these things. But unless you're actively out doing it and living it, at least for a period of time. I'm not saying everybody has to live this way to understand it. But you need to go and you need to do it for at least a, a week or so. You know, you need to have some time out doing it. Um, because there are certain lessons that you learn as a result of living out on the land and living a bit rough that you just can't learn any other way than by going and doing it, you know, and, and this doesn't, um, mean that it's not a great hobby. It's not fun to do, but you know, in order to say that you are really into wilderness living, I think you need to live in the wilderness for a period of time. I think one of the problems we have with this industry and how a lot of people are claiming that so many wilderness instructors are phonies is because they're advertising that they're teaching wilderness living skills when they've never lived in the wilderness for any length of time. Yeah, so the example that comes to mind for me is, I mean, literally your living space, which is our shelters that we build up here. We don't say build it and then look at it, take nice pictures, and then it's done. We, we require students to live in them for a minimum of four days um, because that's that's the point where you... Yeah, you understand the little nuances that make that thing a livable a livable space rather than just like, yeah, I put a tarp over some sticks and that's my that's my shelter and then you walk away from it and go sleep in a tent. Yeah, if you're or a hotel or but if you're listening to this, maybe you had a kind of a sort of woodsy childhood. I know I did growing up rural in New Hampshire and I remember as a little kid, you know, one of the things we would do was build shelters. I mean, they were essentially forts. And I make the claim during our programs that any fort that you don't live in for four consecutive nights, uh, or any shelter shelter that you don't live in for four consecutive nights, is no different than a 10-year-old kid building a fort. Because you've got all these cool ideas. But until you actually go in there and live in it and do it, it's just... It's not even worth yeah, talking about. Yeah, we had one that a student from a previous semester had built and left up. And it was an abomination it was tied to like four trees and it was up four feet off the ground um it it was just yeah it was a really unwise use of resources and the forest resources and time resources yeah and it and so the the purpose of the living thing means that what so i had two students that showed up and they both looked at it was like that's so cool it's like a tree house like oh i want to live in that and by the end of the two weeks that they were here they they understood why i kind of rolled my eyes at that and they could they could look at it and know oh this these are the four reasons this won't work, right. um, which was a cool I mean that's that's the point of this is that you can look at that and be like that's not something I would want to live in. Those are the lessons you learn through experiential exactly. education, and that's you know the one of the big things that we do here is experiential education. So you know the idea that if you do a shoddy job building your shelter, you're going to pay the price. Oh, I have. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's another reason why, you know, another another aspect of that, another aspect of, of being out living it and doing it is uh, why expeditions have always been a huge part of the Jack Mountain educational experience. Because, you know, expeditions, living at the field school and expeditions, that's where the rubber meets the road. That it's really easy to have a lot of crazy ideas that are kind of dogma driven when you're car camping, when you're hanging around, when you're not actually out doing it, living it. So I like to say that expeditions are where dumb ideas go to die, right? You know, people have some crazy ideas about gear. And, you know, there's a reason why when we do winter trips um, that our gear, with the exception of maybe some of the toboggans are plastic while summer wood, um, you know, there's a few modern things. But there's a reason why that the gear is almost interchangeable from stuff 50, 100, 200 years ago. Because it works. 
right? And they haven't come up with any better ideas. They haven't come up with any better stuff. So, you know, one of the reasons we're really focused on tradition, traditional skills, traditional gear, is because it's proven itself over time. It's not some, uh, you know, the idea that somebody dreamed up of some sort of plastic doohickey that you stick on the end of a knife that's going to make it way better for carving or, you know, things like that. Uh, 20 plus years in this business, in this industry, I've seen a lot of those wacky ideas come and go. But the basics remain. The traditional stuff that worked 200 years ago still works now. And in most cases, there's not much modern stuff that makes it any better. I mean, you know, getting back to if we're talking about gear, you know, you can usually go durable or you can go ultralight, but you can't go durable and ultralight. And all the traditional stuff is really durable. If you're going ultra light, yes, there are a lot of modern things that weigh way less than the traditional things, but they usually won't last anywhere near no. as long. Um, but and that's the you know that's the whole point about the experiential bit that to really know it, you've got to get out and do it and live it. And I don't like to use the word test it um, because I think that's a kind of a modern thing about you know guys going out and testing their gear yeah it just doesn't appeal to me and it's probably just a question of semantics but um you know going out and doing it and living it i think is the is the point with the experiential yeah part. it allows you to build you know neither either ultralight or durable is fine but it's it's down to the person to decide what which of those systems works for them and build their own system and you only learn that through being up here and yeah, maybe you have a tent and you bought it because it looked nice and then you use it and it's it's terrible and you want something that's, I don't know, bigger or heavier or something. And you only learn that through being in it and trying out. When you say it's down to the person, the person you're talking to is like a, a TV writer, right? Who's going to define everything for us and right. yeah, yeah, educate us unwashed masses. Is he a renaissance man? <laughs> Wasn't there a movie like a... Uh, uh, it was like a 90s comedy. It wasn't like a caveman who like got thawed and they called him Renaissance Man or something. I might be mixing like... Eight, I was born in 1990, Tim. I might be mixing eight bad movies together. <laughs> that sounds like a great movie. I'd watch it. <laughs> um, that Actually, that's mostly how I feel when I go home to a city. Like when I go back for the off season, yeah. I mostly feel like a dethawed caveman. That's just like... What was for the, two uh, weeks, I'm grunting and hitting things and then I get over it. Saturday Night Live had the, what is it, the, the caveman lawyer or something a long time ago. Is it just a club? No, the guy would be like, uh, he's like a caveman dressed in a suit. and He's like, oh, you're flashing lights of your modern world. They, they frighten me. And then he would do some like ridiculous legal argument right after. So it was all like a sort of a setup. But it was pretty funny. That's actually, yeah. that's how I think that's how both of us feel when we get transplanted into the modern world after being up here for... Six months. Okay, so there's the experiential part, and then the anthropological part. Anthropology, uh, I managed to get a degree in that as an undergraduate um, back in at least a thousand years ago, in 1994. Um, but anthropology is the study of human cultures and how we pass, how we organize ourselves, how we pass on information from one generation to the next. And I think it's an interesting way to look at learning from the land. So in the modern world, we have, you know, survival celebrities, YouTube celebrities, all these people that everybody thinks, oh, geez, that guy is so knowledgeable. Um, and we tend to here not really look at those people or look towards them to give us good instructional content. We like to look at the cultures that have been doing it and living it on the land for thousands of years. Because here's a model that works. You know, if somebody is 
if somebody's really big in the bushcraft world and maybe they're 23 but have 50 million YouTube subscribers and as many knives and probably as many knives you know maybe they don't have the amount of time on the land as say you know our friends up north uh, David maybe David Bosom uh, you know has a bit more time on the land and maybe he would be a better person to sort of gauge what would be appropriate for us to learn and try to replicate than somebody who's sort of just looking at old books um, or, or, or whatever, wherever they, and, I, and this yeah. isn't, I'm not trying to rip on, uh, yeah. modern celebrities or, or YouTube people, right? I think they do a great service. They get a ton of people interested and I think it's awesome. But you know, when I, when we're looking to improve our instructional content here at the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School, we're going to look at traditional cultures. So fortunately I had the, uh, good fortune to, uh, does that make sense? Fortunately, yep. good fortune. Um, to study anthropology in college, and then immediately after college, did the, our 30-day primitive camp in Alaska, summer of 95, and a lot of the information, a lot of the things we were trying to do there were driven by anthropological textbooks, so things like ethnographies, where which is where a researcher would go and live with a culture and write down everything they saw, so there's things, there's books called Material Culture, um, and when we were in Alaska, the big one that we had was the material culture of the Ingalic. And that was where a researcher went and they documented every physical item this culture had and, you know, who used it, how it was made, stuff like that. And you can find material cultures for a lot of different cultures. One of the ones that I really like to look at now is the material culture of the Mistisni Cree because of our relationship with the Cree people in northern Quebec. But it looks at, you know, all the traditional items that they had there. Um, so those are material cultures, ethnographies is talking about the culture, you know, how people would do this and that, how the culture kind of existed. So those sorts of things where we're looking at, you know, basically a successful model that existed on the land for thousands of years, I find are usually more valuable than, you know, somebody who wrote a book because they had, uh, are really interested in uh, some random aspect of living outdoors. Yeah, and it also sort of that whole um, a few podcasts ago, you and Blake talked about like all knowledge is local. Um, if I that allows you to be really specific and get a good insight into sort of the traditional local knowledge. If you look at the people that lived here before we did and how they interacted with the land, that's much more effective than looking at you know if I look at like the Hopi Hopi Indians. Um, and tried to transplant that here, it wouldn't work. Like fire starting in particular, you know, we do hand, we do friction fire up here, but if you look at a lot of the history, um, that, you know, that wasn't the most viable option up here. What, hand drills? Hand drills, yeah. yeah. It just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a reality. It's doable, but it's like, it's hard. And why would you want to do that every time? As much as you use fire, you would find a better way and you would do the one that was easiest for you. So yeah, when you're looking, wherever you you are listening to this, there's probably some historical anthropological record of people working with the natives that lived there. And that's a really good place to start when you're looking at bushcraft uh, skills or survival skills. And again, I hate that word. I much prefer the word culture because if you do it every day, it's culture, not skills. But, you know, the, for example, this part of Maine, there's an interesting book called Penobscot Man by a guy named Frank Speck, written at least 100 years ago. Um, but, you know, he goes through and it's a series of sort of ethnography and material culture. With, but with the idea is that those people lived here, you know, with the local materials they could harvest. They were the pros, right? Yeah. They were the pros. If they could pull it off and do it and it was written up and it was part of their culture, it was written up in that book, you're pretty sure 
that those techniques and approaches and materials worked year after year after year. Um, because with them, when the researcher or the, the anthropologist showed up, that's what they wrote down. So again, what's more valuable, the stuff that's proven the test of time, uh, for, you know, however many generations or thousands of years or something that the latest, greatest, you know, celebrity who's new on the scene just came up. Yeah. With. And it loops back to what we talked about at the beginning. Um, we're interested in experiential knowledge, um, as individual students and instructors up here, we want to know, we want to have a hands-on experience with what we're teaching or using, um, because that's how we learn. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to look at, um, look at information from an outside source, I want it to be the people that, you know, they probably didn't think of it as experiential learning. It, it was just their life. But if, if it, like you said, if it stands the test of time, that's, that's experiential based methods of doing things rather than, um, you know, bringing a culture to another place and forcing it to be transplanted. Right. So long story short, it's our way of saying like when, when something's listed as new and improved with exclamation points for like it's an outdoor dumb. product. Yeah. Avoid it. Yeah. And I have this sort of standing thing that, uh, it's a knife and a blender. <laughs> Isn't a knife just a bunch of blender? or no, wait. Um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, no, my standing thing is that anything that has more than one exclamation point, I'm certain is a sign of like an unstable mind. Um, and it, so especially with knives, if there's more than one exclamation point after it, I'm terrified of it. Yeah. Because that thing's going to come back and bite me and I'm certain of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a very timid caveman who's yeah. been defrosted. That's really what it is. <laughs> New things frighten me. Go uh, A great quote that I have. I, I collect quotations when people say something really interesting. I write it down. And this is from uh, uh, Morris Kahansky. When I first met him in 1995, uh, I was at a, a course at his place. Um, and he said, we, people were talking about knives. And, you know, he's always used the Moore knife. He's pretty much single-handedly responsible for popularizing it in North America. And, you know, guys love their knives. And a guy, I remember a guy asking... More is about the knife that he had or, or just about getting a knife in general. And, and uh, Moore said, well, who do you trust to design and make a knife? He says, Chuck Buck of Buck Knives has about 25 years of experience making and selling knives. And these are what he came up with. But the knife makers from Mora, Sweden, they've been making and using essentially the same knife for a thousand years. So who do you want to make your knife, right? And, the and people that, that have worked out all the kinks. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's exactly. kind of the that's exactly what we're talking yes. about. Like, who do you want to design your bushcraft shelter? You know, the sort of the latest greatest thing, incorporating space age technology. They had to make Apple. in a lab in you know five thousand miles away, or like, well, here's what the people who lived here for thousands of years did. What do you think a shelter designed by Apple would look like? A, apple, like an apple. Wasn't there the movie like James and the Giant Peach where all the yeah. characters lived in a giant peach? Yep. I think you'd live in a giant apple. Done. I think, yeah. They Can would, I eat it? They would genetically <laughs> modify the apple to be enormous <laughs> and thicken the skin so it would be weather tight. <laughs> Done. Sold. Shut up and take my money, Apple. Uh, along the same lines, like maybe you're interested in reading something about this. One of my favorite authors around the field school is a guy and i'll butcher his pronounce the pronunciation of his name like uh but furcat burke is i don't know why you're looking at me anyway i don't know caveman uh, from ice <laughs> he wrote a really interesting book called sacred ecology and it's basically juxtaposing traditional 
ecological knowledge with modern Western scientific knowledge. And essentially what he comes to is that, you know, maybe maybe we have too much hubris as a culture to think that we're always right and other cultures are always wrong. And by sacred, it's not religious. It doesn't have any sort of spiritual. I think he defines sacred as something that's passed down from generation to generation. Um, he's also the guy who was the scribe for the book Cree Trappers Speak, which was an oral history of older Cree trappers. I think it was written in the 80s? Uh, I can't remember. 70s, I think. 70s, maybe. Late 70s. But essentially, they got together all these older Cree trappers who wanted to pass along all the information they had about trapping and the natural world to the young people because their culture was going through, and it still is going through, a really uh, drastic drastic change. change. Yeah. So in the, you know, in the book Sacred Ecology, and if you look for it, you know, if you look for it online, I'll link it in the show notes. If you want to get a copy, it's a really interesting read, but don't get the latest one. It's like a university book from Canada, and they probably print like $4,000. Yeah, they print like six of them a year, and it's close to 100 bucks. But, little quick tip, if you go like on Amazon and always click on the used ones or an earlier edition... You can still find them for five bucks or less, like first edition, second edition, and they don't change that much. Yeah. So that there's your there's your quick tip of the day to save ninety bucks. Um, but there, it's a really interesting book because they will talk about there. I remember there's one scene in it that really jumps out at me, uh, where I think they were studying. He was working with the James Bay Cree, and he was up there doing anthropology while they were um, studying fish runs. So the native guys had nets on the fish run and there was a newly minted PhD who was up there trying to advise them on the best way to do it. But, you know, as the story went that the newly minted PhD didn't know the difference between two different species of fish, one which was hugely desirable for them as a food fish and the other which, you know, wasn't one of their favorite fish to eat. So, you know, the guy was very wise in his sort of book knowledge, but... He didn't know the difference between these two species of fish. So the native guys who were there were like, well, how can you be so learned in all this? How can we take you seriously when you don't even know which fish is which? So I think it's a valid point that, you know, the different kind of modules or the different uh, modes of, of understanding are different. And in our modern Western scientifically driven supposedly world we like to put value judgments on everything like this one's better or that one's better Mm -hmm. but i think it's important to know that it's it's okay for them just to be different yeah um but and just work i think that's another you know um we run into it a lot with students it's what's the best what's the best way to do this what's the the optimum angle that this should be carved at and the reality is like if it works if it works and accomplishes what you need it to, who cares if it's optimum? Or who knows? Or, yeah. or could you ever really know? Yeah, exactly. What do we really know when you get right down to it? That Apple's making a house out of a giant apple. That a defrosted caveman's <laughs> going to live in. Um, yeah. So, let's wrap this up. Yeah. Um, we've got a, a bunch of stuff to do today. Um, but yeah, so the... Hopefully the dark ages of bushcraft are over. Here at the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School, we practice the experiential anthropological approach and the fake binary, uh, you're either a hippie or tactical, is a fake and a lie. And uh, we have no love for the annoying TV writer who came up with that. Yeah. And we're glad it's done. Don't box me in, man. <laughs> So thank you very much for listening yep. to this. Uh, this was probably almost a rant from start to finish. 
We're coming pretty, along pretty quick. close. So. It's pretty good. Thanks for spending this time with us. Hope you guys have a great day, and we'll get back to you soon. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.